Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Rate Shield approval is a real game changer, and here's why. First, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. But here's the crucial part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thing you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. And thanks to Harry's for supporting Rule Breaker Investing. Harry's stands behind the quality of their blades, but they know that switching razors isn't an easy decision. So, they created a trial offer. Claim yours by going to harrys.com fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm delighted to have you with me. If you are a regular, long-time listener, then you know what we're about to do here. It's the last Wednesday of the month of September 2018, and that means it's time for what we do every last Wednesday of every month and have done for years now on this show, and that's your mailbag. That's right. You write me at rbi at fool.com. That's the email address most of you have learned to use. You might also tweet us at, at RBI Podcast. I read through your questions, your stories, your surmisings, your humor. I love it. I really enjoy reading these. I've always read every single note ever sent to us, and it's only with sadness that I let you know that I can't ever share all of them on any show because we have too much to share from Mailbag. But we always read them. Thank you. And then I talk to the ones that seem most interesting, most relevant to the most fools. The greatest good for the greatest number. I believe that's the utilitarian philosophy that I think I studied in college at some point. Was it Jeremy Bentham I'm going to go with? Anyway, the greatest good for the greatest number. That's kind of how we roll with the RBI mailbag. So, yes, that's this month. And as usual, I've got queued up a bunch of points, lots of fun stuff to talk through. Before we get there, though, I want to mention something that changed, that changed the Motley Fool in the last 10 days. And it's just kind of a fun thing. I love always to share out what we're doing here at the Fool. And I assume that at least half of you would be interested in this. I hope you are. We changed the purpose of our company in just the last 10 days. Now, it's not something that came impulsively to my brother Tom, our CEO, and me. Nope. We talked about this for a while. We went through a process talking it out with a lot of our fellow fools, and we finally arrived at a new phrase. So, if you're a longtime fool junkie, and darn it, I sure hope you are, then you may have realized that The Motley Fool's purpose until about 10 days ago, for the last eight years, was to help the world invest better. And that's definitely always going to be what a lot of us are doing at The Motley Fool. However, The Fool has gotten a little motlier. We've broadened a little bit. We have some things that aren't just focused, let's say, on rule-breaker investing, even though my full-time focus is right here with you in picking stocks for Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers. The Motley Fool is starting to do some other things. We have a venture cap fund. We have a lot of interesting irons in the fire. I hope you visited The Ascent which is theascent.com, as in Ascend Up a Mountain, that Ascent. That's for people who are looking to find a better credit card or maybe a better mortgage. And so, we're doing an increasing number of new things. So, we thought about what should now be the purpose of The Motley Fool. And here it is. I'm going to share it with you straight up. It's to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. And I love that phrase, and in part I love it because it hails back to the original three words that we launched with on AOL, keyword fool, back in the day. And I know some of you listening right now were right back there with us back in the day, but you may remember that we would say, keyword fool, welcome to the Motley Fool homepage, 
to educate, amuse, and enrich. And we've used that phrase over and over. We continue to use it to this day. Sometimes you'll see it in marketing materials. Sometimes you'll see it on a t-shirt, a mug, to educate, to amuse, and to enrich. And if you think about what the world looks like that gets educated, that gets amused, and that gets enriched, I think it's a world that's smarter, happier, and richer. And when I think about Rule Breaker Investing, this podcast, I think we're very aligned in this podcast with The Motley Fool's Purpose. So, I won't belabor the point any further. I definitely want you to know the latest news. We tend to change these things maybe once a decade, so you can expect you're going to hear a lot more from me and that phrase and from our company, because that's where we're all aligning now and thinking about what we can do with the day-to-day work that we do on behalf of you and people worldwide. We want to make you smarter. On this podcast, I want to make you happier. We play game shows in this podcast. I want to make you richer. I pick five stock samplers for free in this podcast. We talk all the time, of course, about how to invest better in every aspect of your life, in your investing, in your business or professional life, and of course, in life itself. Invest. Making the world smarter, happier, richer. Welcome to Rule Breaker Investing. Well, as I've taken to doing in recent months, I'm going to start this month's mailbag with some hot takes straight from Twitter, just reacting to some of the fun and interesting tweets that I saw. The first one's from Austin Lieberman. Austin, you sent this at Austin Lieb on September 14th. How can these types of companies even begin to be, quotes, valued by outdated Wall Street metrics? Austin asks. And he basically points in his tweet at a message from the CEO of Shopify, Toby Lukey, Tobias Lukey, who sent this from his Twitter account. He wrote, this is a few weeks ago now, we moved all U.S. East Coast Shopify stores to U.S. Central as a precaution for Hurricane Florence. This was done automatically with zero downtime. That was the quote, that was the tweet from Toby Lutke, the CEO of Shopify. I think what he's saying there is, well, these are virtual stores, right? These are internet e-commerce-based stores that Shopify is managing. So, I take it to mean that they were able to use the cloud and copy and paste all of their East Coast servers and the Shopify stores they're helping power, and they push those over to the central part of the U.S. in order that Hurricane Florence wouldn't disrupt business. Anyway, that's my take on it. Thank you, Austin. That, again, is from the CEO of Shopify, one of our outstanding performers for many Motley Fool members, and a two-time pick in Motley Fool Rule Breakers. My brother has helped a lot of people find that in his services as well. And you're right, Austin, you really can't value that kind of thing. That doesn't show up in a balance sheet. It doesn't show up unless you look really hard, maybe, in the income statement. If somebody says, I want to do more business with a company that treats people that way. But it's really hard to quantify vision. But darn it, that's why Rule Breaker Investing works, my friends, because in part, we're looking at the intangibles. We're using the right side of our brains, and we're thinking about what Wall Street isn't looking at or maybe caring about. And people and CEOs who truly care, who deeply care and make this world better, turns out they often are behind winning stocks over the long term. They're good people doing good things in this world. And great point, Austin. You're right. It really isn't possible to work that into a valuation metric. And yet, That's a real part of the value of companies like Shopify and their leadership. All right, a few more hot takes. These two speak to the Market Cap Game Show, which I played earlier this month with my good friend Matt Argusinger. And I really love these tweets. They both kind of say the same thing. And I'll explain in a second why I love them. So the first one comes from at Sky, that's with an E on the end, like the Isle of Sky, which is a beautiful place to visit. At Sky Cam, who wrote, I'm personally glad. At M. Argusinger, that would be my friend Matt, 
I'm personally glad Matt missed Etsy in episode one because it showed what a great value it was, so I doubled down. Hashtag thanks, Matt, but hashtag I lost to Matt every time. And then Chris Jones, at Chris M underscore Jones, tweeted, hashtag I got Etsy, thanks, at M Argusinger. I bought it after we both overestimated its market cap the first time. Awesome game and a great way to think about investing. Hashtag I still lost to Matt. Well, a couple themes run through those. First of all, it's very hard to beat Matt at this game. That's because Matt is an aspiring Hall of Famer, and I'm always going to bring the best of this show. I'm not here for mediocrity. I'm about to welcome in one of my favorite UI techie minds to, to answer a couple questions coming up. My good friend Greg Robletto. He's great. Greg is great. My producer, Rick, is great. I hope you've gotten to know that. We're all about greatness on this podcast. That's why we have Matt Argusinger come to the microphone to play the Market Cap Game Show. But really, the main point I wanted to make here is that both of these listeners in real life went and bought Etsy stock because they heard Matt dramatically overestimate and miss his guess on what its market cap was. I'm going to kind of make this up, but let's say Etsy's market cap was like $1.5 billion, and he was guessing $4 billion. And at the time, I said, hey, Matt, if you thought it's worth $4 billion, and it turns out it's, it's less, less than half that, doesn't that sound like an undervalued stock that you might want to buy? And I think Matt would tell us, I think he did, that he didn't actually go on to buy it. But darn it, at SkyCam and at Chris M. Jones did, and it is up more than 100% since that first Market Cap game show. So I love those tweets. And then the last one, just a little bit of humor, at Willy1Mo, one of my favorite ongoing correspondents to this show, talking about optimism, something I talked about earlier in the month. And he said, some more great insight. His tweet read, every time I hear the word quotes, optimist, it reminds me of Stephen Wright's joke. Stephen Wright, the comedian, here it is. He wrote, I put my application in for the Optimist Club, but I don't think I'm going to get accepted. End quote. All right, hashtag cheers. Thank you, Willie One Mo. Thank you for another fun month of tweets. A lot of them generated by the Market Cap Game Show with some I beat Matt's, mostly I lost to Matt's. We also had a five stock sampler this month, and if you missed that, mm, mm, good. I hope you'll take a look at it because I picked five stocks for you for free. Uh, stocks that I expect to outperform the market over the next three years. That's another thing we do on this show. All right, well, mailbag item number one. And this one is about market caps at the fool.com site. And I've already pumped him up a little bit. I've already mentioned him, my friend Greg Robletto. Greg, thank you for joining us here on Rule Breaker Investing. David, thank you for having me. Now, I want you to answer a question in a sec about market caps on our site. And I think I have one more question after that for you, but I can't. Can't have you in. I th- I th- this is your debut on Rule Breaker Investing. Is this that right? Is. This yes. is yes. This is so. I I want to start by asking you, before you came to the Motley Fool, which was what year that you came to the Motley Fool? Two thousand and six. Outstanding. So twelve years ago. Mm-hmm. I remember like my early interview with you as a new employee. You were talking about some background in Delaware mm-hmm. and Shakespeare. And <laughs> even though you do UI design and are a semi-techie, and sometimes I'm not aware of what the differences are between these things, but I know you're both. You also have lots of other facets. Could you briefly share with us just your Delaware Shakespeare background? Sure. Thanks, David. I, yes, I am a UI designer and developer by day, but uh, for years, especially when I lived back up in Delaware before I moved to this area, joined The Motley Fool, then I helped start up a Shakespeare company in northern Delaware, the Delaware Shakespeare Festival. It's been uh, shortened out to Delaware Shakespeare because they do much more than just the single summer festival now. It has been going strong for about what, what now? About 15 years that or so. That is outstanding. 
Yes, it is. A, it's a wonderful uh, opportunity to see Shakespeare under the stars for the people in northern Delaware. I was so happy just to see how it has grown and grown over time. I mean, is there a bust or something of you as the founder that <laughs> I pass by on my way to my seat under the stars watching As You Like It? You often find me up there shaking hands and saying hello to people as they go to their seats there. I try and go back up for it every summer. That's awesome. Um, I think a lot of our listeners know that every one of our employees is encouraged to state their motley. That's one of our core values here at The Fool. It's kind of the value that you bring, that you uniquely bring to our workplace, because in your case, you're Greg Robledo. Greg, what is your motley? <laughs> My motley is explore. There is always a way. And I generally find this helps me through either development as I'm trying to get through code and figure out how to actually put the site together, or design as I'm trying to figure out how to serve the members for the needs of what they want to do, or serve the business needs. There's, there's always a way. I just need to find it. That is awesome, and thank you for 12 great years, and let's go for 12 more. Thank you, David. And let's go to Lou Miller's question here. So, Greg, he starts, hi, David. Basically, Lou is a fan, and thank you, Lou, of the Market Cap Game Show. He says, it's an entertaining way to learn more about the role of market caps in making investing decisions. Lou goes on, I'd been aware of my stock's market caps before, but frankly, had not thought about them in a foolish way until you began the Market Cap Game Show with Matt some months ago. Now, I am acutely aware of market caps and take it into consideration and making allocation decisions, among others. Good on you, Lou. I'll keep going. However, now that I'm more focused on the market caps, I've noticed that the Motley Fool's market cap data occasionally does not line up with that of other market data providers, such as Yahoo Finance and Google Finance. And this seems especially true with some small-cap stocks. Lou goes on, for example, on the Motley Fool scorecard, Appian has a cap of $867 million, but Google Finance has it at $2.2 billion. He gives a few other examples. Does it have something to do with the number of shares floated versus the number outstanding? And if so, why would some use floated while others use outstanding? Or is it something else? Greg Ribletto, help us out here. What's going on with market caps? Not all of them, but some of them look a little messed up on our site. Oh, you are so right, Lou. And thank you, David, for giving me a chance to talk about this. I've been chasing this down, I feel like, for the better half of this year. We have uh, one of the things that has really changed, I think, is that a lot of uh, newer companies are now doing a dual share class with the uh, public private shares. And our data provider is only giving us back the public share information, not the private share. So for stocks like Yandex or Stitch Fix or MongoDB or Apian, then we are only getting back the publicly tradable. Uh, share number and not the number we're looking for, the number we think of as the market cap, which is the total number of shares. We're working with our data provider to figure out if this is something that we can resolve. And so, one of the things that uh, my team has been doing across the UI of the sites is just putting up an NA when we think we're put giving the wrong information. So, if you're in the Rule Breaker site or the Stock Advisor site, we now have it. If you're looking at Stitch Fix, there's an NA there because we know we're giving you the wrong information. But, Lou, I think you're talking about the personal scorecards, and those are still one I'm working on tracking down and making sure that we NA the right things out of that one as well, so that when you're looking at your stocks, you're not seeing incorrect market cap information. Awesome. Thank you, Greg. You know, there are a ton of numbers in investing. I just think about one company's 10K, let alone all the 10Ks and all the things. And I know we're always aiming for 100% accuracy. I don't think we hit it. I'm not sure any site on the internet does, but I really do appreciate all of Greg's work to make it accurate 99.9% of the time. And then I appreciate people like Lou, who for the other 0.1 say, hey guys, what's going on? So thank you, Greg. Will you hang with me for one more? Sure, I'd love to. Excellent.
Mailbag item number two. This comes from Todd Neiman. He simply says, Hello there. A while back, you shared your 25 questions for risk rating stocks on this podcast. I was trying to look online, but I could not find those questions. Could you please send me the list? Love the show. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Todd Neiman. Well, thank you, Todd. So, Greg, yeah, I really enjoyed doing that series. I spent three consecutive weekly podcasts and broke down all 25 of those questions so that my fellow fools understand how we, how we, at least how I like to look and think about risk. Like, what's the risk of me losing money on this stock? That, to me, is the risk we're guarding against. So, our rating system, which I think a lot of our listeners know, is 0 to 25. The higher the risk rating, the higher the risk. So, a stock with a 19 risk rating is a lot riskier, a lot greater chance of losing your money than a stock with a 9 risk rating. Now, Greg, this is something that we do have in at least one special place on our website. Oh, yes, yes. Well, first, you can find those podcasts on podcast.fool.com. They should be in the archives there. I would hope so. I remember listening to them. They were they were great to listen to and go through all 25 steps. Well, thank you. And Greg, did you help build that portion of our podcast center? I did. I did, yes. Excellent. So, your handiwork, you're all over this podcast and our <laughs> site, which is not surprising. So, you're right. Um, presumably, somebody could Google rule breaker investing risk ratings maybe david gardner and they're going to find a link to listen to those podcasts i sure do believe so and i think we're working on even getting them transcripts uh, down the road as well if we can have that, that would available be awesome. too but you know what else when we're talking about the risk rating we have the application of the risk rating on individual stocks and that's within the premium services so on the rule breaker service if you go into rule breakers from the new top nav it says performance and it gives you a list of all the stocks that are actually rule breakers and then we give you the name and we give you their price and one of the columns is risk rating and it just lists right down there you can sort it you can click through on it to learn more about the breakdown of the 25 for any of the stocks that are in the Rule Breaker service. Beautifully said, Greg. And do I feel some product placement coming on, which we don't do that often on this, but I think that I do. I think Todd Neiman, if he's not already a Rule Breakers member or a member of Motley Fool Stock Advisor, Todd and anybody like him, yep, we've got risk ratings, as Greg just mentioned, right there in your premium service on the pages that Greg referred to. So join rb.fool.com all the things, all the risk ratings, and mostly accurate market caps. <laughs> Greg, thank you very much, and Fool On. Thank you, David. All right, mailbag item number three. This one from Charles Bule, writing in from, you betcha, Botswana. Hello, Charles Bule, and thank you very much for taking the time to write. He was reflecting on what we talked about in last week's podcast, and that's the six hows of Rule Breaker Investing. And I said flat out on that podcast, this is putty in your hands. This is draft material. I'd love to hear back for anybody who thinks they can top it, subtract from it, add to it. Well, Charles had an addition, and I am tempted to add this. Ultimately, I don't think that I'm going to, Charles. I love the idea, but it takes away from the parallelism that I have established with the six traits of a rule breaker company and the six halves of a rule breaker investor. I like how it's six and six, but I kind of love what you did with this one, so I definitely want to share it. Charles wrote, Hi, David. Great episode summarizing the fool's excellent philosophy. I was a bit happy to hear three years is also worth targeting, not the usual five. Also, after reading the analysis in August's Fortune magazine, we might all have to drop the mainsail in the not-too-distant future and just sail on the jib. Now, I have to admit, um, I don't regularly read Fortune magazine, but my good friend, producer Rick Engdahl, has the power of the Google with him. And Rick, you I see right now you are Googling 
Fortune Magazine, August, what are you finding? Um, uh, I don't know about analysis, but the front cover is a man screaming, wearing a sign that says, the end is near. Uh, the side <laughs> notes say the U.S. economy will slow and the bull market will end. And here's what you must do now. Okay. So a doom and gloom there on that cover. Yeah, I can kind of see it through the glass, and it looks dark. I see just kind of blacks and whites with fortune red. It's it, it, Blood red. Yeah, kind of a apocalyptic, I would say. All right. Well, anyway, um, speaking of the apocalypse, Charles goes on. Now, I'm not religious, he says, but after many months of deciding on great companies I'd like to invest in, I'd like to add a number seven to our list of hows. And Charles says, number seven rest. Like on the seventh day, we rest. Charles goes on, investing gets addictive, so I'd like to recommend having one day off per week when one should avoid investing at all possible costs. So, seven heaven, seventh heaven, we are bombarded with info on a daily basis, and it's just too easy to become hooked. And that comes from Charles from Botswana. Foolish wisdom, he closes spreads far and wide. I think I'm just going to leave that one right there. I kind of love that the seventh would be rest, and it fits into the mnemonic, because a lot of us can think of the seventh day as a day of rest. But it does kind of crack my six and six parallelism I was talking about earlier. So we'll, we'll just kind of leave that as a footnote for now and something we'll be considering. But Charles, really inspired. Thank you, and thanks for writing and listening from half a world away. All right, Rule Breaker mailbag item number four. This one comes from Aiden. Aiden, I loved your note. My name is Aiden. I enjoy your company's podcast. I've never emailed a podcast host before, so forgive me if my writing is disjointed. I wouldn't have written in if teenagers hadn't recently been encouraged to write in on the RBI podcast. Aiden goes on, here's my foolish story. It all started in my ninth grade financial literacy class. My teacher was teaching us about stocks and investing. He was trying to explain to us what the benefits of making your money work for you were. He talked about compound interest and the like. Frankly, Aiden goes on, it was boring. I didn't really get what the big deal was. Later, while I was doing stock research for the class, I stumbled upon an advertisement for the Motley Fool. Now, to be honest, he says, I thought it was a scam. People had told me my whole life that it was near impossible to beat the market, but I thought your logo looked cool, so I spent some time on your site. Long story short, he writes, I found market foolery, and I enjoyed it, and after that, I started listening to Industry Focus. By this time, my financial literacy class was over, but my interest in investing in the economy was just beginning, and slowly, without me even realizing it, I saw the point and fun of investing. I then started listening to Motley Fool Answers and Rule Breaker Investing. I most enjoy, he says, the five stock samplers. He continues, and again, thank you so much for writing in Aiden. Yes, I love to hear from younger fools. Awesome. He continues, I wrote a book, albeit a small one, a while back. I had not known what to do with the revenue. So, we've, we're talking about a published author who made some money off his book at a young age. Well done. He says, after months of listening to the Fool podcasts and with some encouragement from my teacher, yep, that same financial literacy teacher whose class had ended, I decided to invest my money into the market for the long term. I have never looked back. That investment of money will definitely improve my life in the future, and I would not have invested if it were not for The Motley Fool. Your company has most definitely enriched, amused, and entertained me. Feel free to read this letter out on your podcast 
or not, but don't disclose my email, and I will not do that, Aiden. No one's getting your email. They're going to have to come after me. Okay, he closes with this postscript. Recently, I listened to your poetry and prose episode. Yep, that was last month's mailbag. Really fun episode. He said, I found a Psalm of Life by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Very clever. Yep, we read that out on the podcast. As I'm going back to school this week and starting a poetry unit in English class, I figured it'd be a good time to check out a book of Longfellow poems from the local library. I like his poetry. I would not have discovered it without this podcast. I was inspired to write a small poem about the foolish investing philosophy. So here we go from an already published writer. I don't know if this is Aiden's first poem or not. Aiden, by the way, is just a great Irish name, and I always think of Yeats, and I think of poetry running through Ireland. But here goes Aiden. Till I am old, till I am old, I will buy and hold. It may seem quite boring, but what fun it is, scoring and not much have I ever sold. The market may change and others may sell, but I have held on, and I have done well. Well, I guess Aiden, if he did see that Fortune magazine cover, probably just ignored it as maybe I would have as well. Because while we might have a really bad market, it does happen from time to time. It could be this fall. It could be 2019 or 2028. It's going to happen, but it's never an end. And whether it's near or not, There is no end. Look at a graph of the Dow Jones Industrial Average over the last century and see which direction it goes over long periods of time. And I'm glad that Aiden, at a young age, has already figured that out. Fool on, Aiden. Is that the chief investment officer of The Motley Fool that I see coming into the studio right now? Yes, it is. And my friend Annie Cross is going to help me out with a number of the next few items. But first... Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Let's talk about buying a home for a minute. And because of rising interest rates, there's some unpredictability in the world at large now when it comes to buying a home these days. And for some, it's no doubt causing some anxiety. Well, our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that. They're calling it the power buying process. Here's how it works. Quicken Loans will verify your income, your assets, and your credit in less than 24 hours. That'll give you a verified approval. It gives you the strength of a cash buyer. Then, once you're verified, you qualify for their all-new, exclusive Rate Shield approval. First, they're going to lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. And now, here's the best part. If rates go up, your rate stays right where it was when you signed up with them, when you were verified. That's right. It stays the same, even when real rates go up. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. So, either way, Sounds to me like you're a winner. And one of my themes for this week, I've been saying this ridiculous phrase around the office too many times, winners win. Winners win. So either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash full rate shield approval. Only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions, additional conditions, or exclusions may apply based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records, equal housing lender, licenses in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org number 3030. And we want to thank Harry's for supporting Rule Breaker Investing. Now, based on my personal experience with Harry's, yep, I've got a Harry's razor that I take a look at every morning. When compared with other shavers, that glide and comfort are amazing, truly unmatched when it comes to men's grooming. I'm sure many of my fellow fools out there can say the same. And 
Those who haven't tried will be convinced. And with that being said, we have a special offer for listeners. Harry stands behind the quality of their blades, but they know that switching razors isn't an easy decision, so they created a trial offer. That's right, you can claim yours by going to harrys.com fool. Harry's delivers a close, comfortable shave at a fair price. Harry's.com slash fool. That's right, a $13 value trial set that comes with everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. Make sure you go to harrys.com slash fool to redeem your offer and let them know I sent you to help support this show. All right, without further ado, my friend Andy Cross. Andy, when did you first come to The Motley Fool? 1996, David. And by the way, thanks for having me on. This is really great. My delight to have you, Andy. And so you have been with The Motley Fool just about as long as I have. And you've done such outstanding work across all of our services. And you help advise our analysts. And you were one of our great fools. And it's a delight for me to have you. Well, thank you. Uh, on Rule Breaker Investing this week. Now, Andy, I have a bunch of questions from members. I just thought I could answer these, but I should have Andy in because let's talk about him, right? And and really, I want to hear what you think more than what I think. So, I've shared one of these with you, so I think you're prepared, but the other mm-hmm. ones, who knows what you're going to say. So, Love let's it. get started. Great. Okay. Rule Breaker mailbag item number five. Now, we had an earlier correspondent, Andy, from Botswana. This time we're headed to New Zealand, so it's fun to think how global this podcast is becoming really Fair. all Motley Fool podcast and really our business. That's right. But let's go to Josh in New Zealand who wrote this. Hi, Dave. You recently replayed an interview with John McCain. Josh says, really enjoying the From the Vaults extras, by the way. In the interview, John states that the stock market return since the Second World War was around 5.5%, and you appeared to agree with him. Well, let me pause it there for one sec. Uh, a reminder for those who may not have heard, with the dearly departed John McCain, we did do an interview back in the day on the Motley Fool Radio Show, and we ran that as an extra earlier this month. And anybody who's a McCain fan who wants to hear me mix it up with McCain, it was an honor to do so. In that exchange, he quoted, this is from 20 years ago when we had this interview, he quoted how the stock market had an annualized return of like 5.5% since World War II. This is after the market had crashed. I don't think that I initially agreed with him. We just kept moving. But we're going to talk about this because Andy Josh is going to ask about this. So, Josh goes, that left me thinking, hey, Dave, what happened to my other 4.5%? As I've heard you say on the podcast, the market return was an average of of 10%. So that figure has always seemed optimistic to me, Josh writes, as at that rate, we could expect to double our money roughly every seven years. Josh goes on, I also heard other people generally talk about 6 or 7% as the average stock market returns. So what is happening here, Andy? Uh, it's a great question, David, and it just reflects, makes me reflect on one of the one, just one of the beautiful charts we love. But I know both you and I love to reflect on investing, which is the long term. I'm talking fifty plus years of performance of whether it's the Dow Jones Industrial Index or whether it's the S and P 500, and that chart just seems to go continually up and to the right, lower left, upper right, it, any meaningful period of time, and not just in the United States, right? Andy? That's right. It's very global. Those are both U.S. indices, um, and it's very global. And, and the the chart speaks to that to the global perception of investing. Um, now, in between, over short periods, you do see some rocky times, like between 1999 and 2008, when the we saw these two, two massive drawdowns in the market. However, to the question, and it's a great question about annualized returns, um, the number 10% is about right. When you look back over 90 years of investing, and this is right at, right from Professor Aswath uh, Demotorin from NYU, 
Um, his data shows 10% annualized returns over 90 years, a little bit more over 50 years. So that 10% number is the number that we typically state. Now, when you start baking in and accounting for inflation, which runs about two and a half to three and a half percent annualized um, over time, as well as dividends, you can start to peel back that 10% a little bit by little bit. However, for the investor in us, if you just buy the index and you had held it for 50 years or so, you would be returning that 10% annualized return. Right. And you and I both know that 50 years later, a dollar doesn't quite buy as much when inflation is eroding its value. But actually, that's one of the reasons we do invest, so you can stay ahead of inflation. David, that is so true. And not only stay ahead of inflation, but stay way ahead of inflation, especially compared to other vehicles that you can invest in. So, for example, the 10-year annualized bond return here in the United States over that same 90-year period is less than 5%. If you look just the last 10 years, the return of that 10-year bond has Mm. been 3.5%. So, compared to 8.5% for stocks just the last decade, and then, again, going back the the 25, 50, 100 years, you start looking at that 10, 11% annualized return. So, what I like that Josh is doing is he's asking that question, and I think we're all realizing that it's all what starting date are you going to pick and what end date. We always like like the biggest amount of data that you can get, 90 years. You just mentioned that the market over the last 10 years is up about 8.5%. Well, doing my math, 2018 minus 10 equals the Great Recession, 2008-9. It's still been a pretty great decade, take it all in all, but that's a lower than historical rate because you're starting from 10 years ago, which was right before the market caved. That starts in 2008, and the market in 2008 uh, just totally um, created cratered by more than 35%. Those drawdowns are very rare. That's one, hopefully once in, in our, our generation, we won't see those kinds of returns in one year. They do call it the do Great happen. Recession, not the every recession is like this recession. That's right. And and, and they, they, they have they have happened. And we saw, David, just since you've started The Motley Fool with Tom, and since I've been working with you, we saw, did see two pretty significant drawdowns in 1999, 2000, and, or 2000, 2001, and 2008, 2009. Yeah, exactly right. So, thank you, Josh, for the question. I'm going to just keep saying 10%. It feels right to me, but there is inflation to consider. And Josh is writing from New Zealand, and not every country is going to have identical data. But these days, you can generally Google things and see rates of return in different countries over different time periods. That's right. Andy, is there a particular site that is accessible to our listeners where they could find some of this historic information? So, I, I mentioned Profe- Professor uh, Demodoran's site at NYU. That is free. He has a pl- he just provides all kinds of sorts of data, but he has one particular page that you can download a file that has all that data, and it's very well organized, and the data goes back to 1928. Yes, and he is a professor at NYU. Serious investors know Aswath Demodoran's work, but for those who are hearing that for the first time wondering, how the heck do you Google or spell Demodoran? Off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure it's D-A-M-O-D-O-R-A-N. That's correct. I am. I occasionally mention this once every three months or so. I am the Motley Fool's reigning spelling bee champion. <laughs> So I don't even look up stuff. I just spell it. It's just other people see colors. Some people see numbers. I just see letters everywhere I look. Have we actually had a spelling bee here at the Motley Fool? Absolutely. Yeah, a couple times maybe? Uh, yeah, I want to make it really clear, Andy. It sounds like you missed work I'm, that day. I may have missed work. I I, I did it. I, I was. I think uh, Tim Hansen was a finalist with great, me. Great, great. Um, and uh, I think my friend Tom Madigan as well. He's Great. our editor at Rule Breakers and Stock yep. Advisor. 
But uh, a bunch of us entered, but only one walked away. It's a battle royale out there, and I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to talk too much about this every month or two on this podcast. I don't want to play myself up too much as often as I can. As, as somebody who loves orthography, which is a really important word. If anybody doesn't know what that word means, you definitely need to look it up. How do you and spell I, it? O-R-T-H-O. Thank you, Rick. G-R-A-P-H-Y. Okay. Rule breaker mailbag item number six. This one comes, my golly, are we going global? This is from Mahmoud in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Thank you for writing in, Mahmoud. He said, hi, David. Love the show. I've been a listener for a while now, but I recently subscribed to Stock Advisor to encourage my wife to start investing. She started two months ago. She's already beating the market by around 5% thanks to you and Stock Advisor. My question, pretty straightforward, really. I'm going to ask it of you, Andy. When do you add to a winner? Okay, so Mahmoud goes on with a little bit more, I'll give you here. He said, I add money to my stock account every month, but most of the time, I'm attracted to the new shiny stock that I don't own. I usually end up buying the stock of the moment as opposed to adding to my winners because I feel like I missed the boat with my winners. So his strategy for the past two years he closes with, he says, it's worked pretty well. He's beating the market by around 15%, but he could have beaten it much more if he'd added to his NVIDIA, to his Square. I wish I owned Square. To his Amazon. I do own that one. What I'm thinking of doing now, Mahmoud closes, is every month I'm going to add to the stock that had increased by 20% within the last three months. Wow. Is this strategy good? And if not, when do you add to your winners? Andy Cross, take well, a shot. I love the attitude of adding to your winners. I mean, just looking back at my investing career, I think that some of the biggest mistakes I made is when I, when not only did I not add to my winners, but I actually added to my weeds in my garden as opposed to my flowers. So Through good money after bad. Yeah, I so I, I, it's it's an evolution process. And um, and so I love the the idea of adding to your winners. Uh, uh, one, one thing I love to think about is building out positions over time. You don't have to buy your entire position at one time. So David recommends a company in Rule Breakers or in Stock Advisor. Don't feel like you have to buy all of your allocation of your portfolio at that time. So buy a little bit here. We talk. Uh, we have talked in the past about buying in thirds. I love that approach. Um, and and set the. Uh, commitment to buy. So regardless of, of whether the the price has moved dramatically up right. or down, buying that thirds. And just to give a little bit more, because I know some of our longtime fools will know what Andy means when saying buying in thirds. But for those who don't, the idea is let's just pretend that you ultimately want to put, let's say, $3,000 in a stock position. But you're feeling a little timid. Maybe it's been on a big run. You're just, it's it's hard to pull the trigger. So what we've suggested in the past to the Motley Fool, you definitely Google buying in thirds, you're going to find your way to fool.com pretty quickly, is take 1,000 of those 3,000. Just buy right now. It doesn't matter where the stock is, whether it was up or down. Don't even look at today where it traded. Just get in the game. With one-third of your money, psychologically, you're going to win either way. If the stock goes up from there, this is what I'd say, man, am I glad that I got something in there. Because otherwise, I was going to wait and look, it's already up, and now I'm making money. On the other hand, Andy, if it goes down after you bought your first thousand, then what are you thinking? Well, Andy? then you're like you're glad you didn't commit all of the three thousand dollars right away. And so we win either way. That's right. So, but having the commitment and that plan to invest, um, I, I think it is. We know years of investing, David, have told us that the best companies continue to win, and they will continue to win going forward. So you should not be afraid to commit to those winners. Um, 
the, the, the thing you want to do be careful about, David, is your allocation in your total portfolio. Um, just thinking about how much of a stock that you want in your individual portfolio to make up of your individual portfolio, you might set limits about that. It could be 10%, it could mm-hmm. be 20%, it might be 5%. So just understanding the boundaries of your allocation guidance when you are thinking about adding to your winners, because by definition, they are making up a larger percentage of your portfolio. And is it fair to say, would you agree with me this week that winners win? I, I, I think winners I would. Winners win? Yeah. I, not even, I don't think, David. I know winners win. Winners win. All right. Well, I've got at least one more mailbag on him with you, Annie, but I just want to make sure that we finished it out there with Mahmoud. So he specifically said he's going to wait to add to a stock that had increased by 20% within the last three months. Now, is that a strategy that you specifically would use? Is it directionally right? What do you think? I think it is directionally right, uh, David. If uh, But but in, in a short amount of time, um, some of your favorite stocks, some of your winners may be up 4%. The stock market may be down 10%. So right. Sh- you may not even find a stock that went up 20% in the last three months if we have a bad three months. That's right. Now, it's been a good, it's been a very good um, couple years here for us investing. So, we've, hopefully, people have been adding to their winners. Um, so, I think directionally, you want to understand that and be committed to adding to your winners because ultimately those are the ones that are going to drive the biggest gainers in your overall portfolio. And you want to have money set aside to be able to invest in those. One final thought for you, Mahmoud. You know, you could take the money that you're ready to invest in. Great job saving. Great job you and your wife having regular money to invest. That's the hardest trick of all, just being a saver in this world. So you're doing that. You could split it in half. You could say, hey, Every month, every two weeks, whatever your paycheck, whenever it comes, you could say half is going to go into a new shiny stock, and I love those two, and half is going to go into a company that's performing well that we think is doing great things in this world. Now, that's arbitrary. There's no one-size-fits-all, and that's why Andy and I are always cautious about our language, because just as we have writers this month from Botswana, New Zealand, Saudi Arabia, and yeah, the good old US of A, there are many different contexts out there. So one of the tricks is you got to kind of know your context. So listen to the global thing we're saying, but live and act locally in a way that makes the most sense for you. All right, mailbag item number seven. I do believe this is our last mailbag item for this month's podcast. Dear Dave, Greg Rowe writes, just wanted to write and say thank you. I recently completed 30 years in the Navy with the last 19 in the reserves. I started investing, albeit very conservatively, back in the mid-90s. I plugged along from that time until about 2014, just investing in various mutual funds. I remember making a call to my investment advisor in 2008 as things turned south. We talked about that, Andy. Lamenting that my best investment was a 529 account in Virginia that had locked in eight semesters of college for my son. As we came out of the recession, another friend and I discussed the best ways to invest for those without the time and expertise to do a lot. His advice, you can think Bogle, etc., go with funds, this sort of a thing. So, after taking the gentleman's C, Greg writes, as you call it, for a few years, I wondered if I could do better. I was intrigued by The Motley Fool more than any other investment service out there. Buy stocks? Greg writes, wow, very risky. There are a bazillion stocks. How do I know what to buy? How much time and effort do I need to invest to do better than the market? So, Greg signed up for The Fool in 2014 and started his ride. He goes on, I've listened to dozens of RBI podcasts, heard you explain my mistakes to me, even as I did them. Greg said, I bought Netflix at 55, then sold within a year when it dropped, only to rebuy later and 
thankfully, re- reap the rewards of patience with a great yet volatile company. Invest in a business, not a stock. Stocks go down faster than they go up, but go up more than they go down. I'm going to skip a little lower in Greg's wonderful note. What I find interesting, he writes, and Andy, this is where I'm kind of welcoming you into the to the close of this week's podcast. What I find interesting, Greg says, is that of the stocks I bought based on the Motley Fool's recommendations, many are very poorly rated by my brokerage. Hey, this is my brokerage too. I know what Greg said. Charles Schwab using their equity rating scorecard. Greg says, I'm so thankful that I've educated myself using your services and recommendations, Stock Advisor, Rule Breaker, Rule Breaker Investing Podcasts, to buy companies, not stock symbols, because Schwab's equity ratings based on aggregated score using a valuation grade, a quality grade, and a sentiment grade based on a series of financial metrics in the past, etc., all look pretty much, Greg says, horrible when I put the Motley Fool stocks through the Schwab equity ratings. He said, for example, our pick of Okta in January, ticker symbol OKTA, which we gave a relatively high 12 risk rating to, rationalized our confidence based on what the business did and how it was led, not just metrics. Schwab's scorecard grade for Okta is, it's an F. An F, Andy. That's what Greg says anyway, with quotes a strongly underperform qualitative notation. However, since he purchased it just after our recommendation, it's gained over 100% just over eight months, which by the way, I wish we could do that every time. That's rare for us, but that is real. That is real. With an F, I guess, riding all the way up. Did it get even worse? When it 50%? Is it now even more of an F? An F minus? I don't I don't know how those work, but pay paycom, pay C, paycom. I think yep. you know this one well, Andy, is an F. He's gained nearly 120% on that one. Match Group, which is a four-bagger firm, is a D. Netflix is a D. Nearly a four-bagger firm as well. NVIDIA, I could keep going. NVIDIA is a C. It's a five-bagger firm. His point is, and he says it at the end, that the insights that we provide, our more aggressive and insightful vision into what constitutes great businesses, has enabled him, I'm really happy he says this, to get smarter, richer, and have fun. Sounds like the Motley Fool's new purpose. He's even relayed these insights to his 20-year-old son, Andy Cross. What is your take on the whole Schwab equity ratings or just equity ratings in general and how they roll with foolishness? Yeah, we're having a little fun with Schwab, but I think it goes across a lot of the uh, brokerage houses and other investment um, I found that Morningstar can be very conservative on some of the stocks that you and I favor most. They are. As an example, it's not just Schwab. It's not exactly. um, there's there's a there's a lot that goes into stock recommendations. We spend a lot of time thinking about our our principles of um, business orientation, um, people first, uh, market opportunities, and importantly, David, which I think a lot of these firms don't particularly think about, which is um, timeline. Our timeline of these biz of, of mm. willingness to hold our stocks and this be patient so through the up and down. And when I just look at the definition of Schwab's how they base their equity ratings, they base them on, straight from their site, fundamentals, valuation, momentum, and risk. There's a lot to those categories, and they may think very differently than what we think. Uh, we're very clear in our thesis when we write, whether it's in Stock Advisor, or Rule Breakers, or Supernova, or uh, through any of our other services, our, our guiding guidelines on the businesses and the and the stocks. And we just look at the world differently than so many other places, and it's benefited us for 25 years I of suppose by playing a game differently than the way everybody else is playing it, we have a better chance often of winning because people aren't trying to do what we're doing. 
Well, that's absolutely true. When you think about the turnover, which is the selling of stocks in our services from Stock Advisor all the way to uh, Tom at the Everlasting Portfolio, uh, we sell so very, very rarely. And that's so different when the active, the, your average active mutual fund manager is turning over their portfolio, say, once every eight or nine months. All right. Well, Andy, thank you very much for your insights throughout the last 15 minutes or so of this show. And Greg Rowe, thank you for your service. 30 years in the Navy, that sounds pretty good to me. And thank you for our correspondence far and wide. I didn't even get to Nick West from Canada. We ran out of time, Nick. I loved the story about investing with your son. Maybe we'll cover that in future. But this is another one for the books. Mailbag, thank you again to my producer, Rick Engdahl. Thank you to my guests, Greg Robletto and Andy Cross. And thank you, you, whoever you are, for suffering fools gladly this week. Next week, we're going to kick it off with October. Not even sure what I'm going to do to kick off October. I know one thing, we're going to be trying to make you smarter, happier, and richer. In the meantime, fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rulebreaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.